Evening, everybody. If you would, open up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. When you get there, look down in verse 31. We'll read to the end of the chapter here. Mark 7, 31. It opens with these two words, and again. Departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he, speaking of Christ, came onto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. Now, consider this man's infirmity for a second. He's deaf, and that is likely from birth. He can't hear a word, and he can't speak either. My understanding of deafness is this. If a person cannot speak, it's likely become because they are deaf from birth. You learn to speak through hearing. Therefore, if you are born deaf, you never gain this ability to speak. But this man's case is even worse than probably what meets the eye right here, what we can see. If you notice, he doesn't even know where to go for help. It says they had to bring him to Christ. Whoever they is, his family, his friends, whoever they are, they had seen the miracles. They knew of this man who could heal the sick and cleanse a leper and raise a man from the dead. They knew of him and they brought him to Christ. This man had to be brought, but this man, he is deaf. He can't say a word and he doesn't even know where to go for help. That's how bad his situation is. Now, look at verse 33, and let's see what the Lord did for this man. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears. And he spit and touched his tongue. Think about what's going through this man's mind right now. The Lord puts his fingers in his ears, how awkward that would have been. And then he spits on his hand, the Lord did, and he reaches out and he touches that man's tongue. What would this man have thought? What would have been going through his head? But look what else happened here. And looking up to heaven, verse 34, he sighed and said unto him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And straightway, immediately, his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man, but the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. And that's certainly the case when the Lord reveals himself to a man. He has to tell other people about it. Just want to tell them about this great Savior, just, just itching for it. But look at how these people responded to all this. They saw all these wonderful things, and look what happened in verse 37. And were beyond measure astonished, these people, this man, all of them, saying, and listen to these words, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. I'm going to read you a very familiar verse of Scripture. Todd has quoted it several times in the last couple of months, but listen to it again. This is 1 Peter 3.15. Peter says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready, always, in season and out of season, to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason, a singular reason, of the hope that is in you with meekness, 
and with fear. How would you answer? Say someone who is in your sphere of influence, somebody you work with, someone you're close with that does not know God. And they're going through a very troubling time. And they come to you and they say, you are always in some way optimistic. There's something about you. There is something in you. There is a reason I'm not sure of. There is some hope in you. You have this great hope that basically everything's going to be okay. Why do you have that hope? What is the reason for that hope? Because I don't have it and I want to know. If I had just a few words, just a breath, to answer that question, here's how I would answer it. He, Christ, hath done, finished, all things, all things that are necessary for my salvation. And he has done them all incredibly well, so well that God the Father accepts even me. Now, as far as hope goes, because Peter says this, Give a reason, a singular reason for your hope. Here's my hope, and I think I can speak for just about every believer. This is my hope. This is it. That when I die and I stand before that holy and that just God, that God who demands, he will take nothing else but perfect righteousness, sinlessness, purity. That is his demand. He is a just God. You must meet that standard. That when I stand before him on judgment day, he is going to look at his son. I'm up for trial, but he's going to look at his son, and his son is going to say these words. The son then turns to me, and he says this, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A hope, acceptance with God, despite everything I've done and everything I've thought and all the terrible motives that have come out of this heart, despite all that, I will have true acceptance with a just and holy God, and I will see my Savior face to face. And it's a twofold hope. Here's the other fold of the hope. It's this, that everything that happens from now until that day is all working together to bring the greatest glory to that one who saved me and to bring me to that expected end. That everything is going to be just fine. It's all going to be well, very well. What's the reason for that hope? He hath done all things well. That's it, a singular reason, ah, reason, just one. Now, let's consider that statement for a minute. Number one, he, he, who is he? I struggle to find the words to express what I'm going to try to say here in a minute. There is a man in glory. There's a God-man. There's a man of flesh and a man of bone. He is a man, a God-man. And I am thankful, folks, for everything he's given us. I'm thankful for this book. I'm thankful for doctrine. Those reoccurring themes in this book that tell us this is the word of God. This is the truth of God. Paul says it over here. You see the illustration over in the Old Testament. You see it over here in Philippians. It's over there in Romans 2. I'm thankful for doctrine. But doctrine did not bear my sins in his body and die for me. And I'm thankful for faith and repentance, but faith and repentance did not love me before the foundations of the world were ever built. A man did. One day when we get to glory, we are going to touch, and we are going to handle, and we are going to see a man, a person. A person is our Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. Amen. And the question is this, what's he like? And we can spend all night on that. You couldn't preach enough to cover his attributes. I'm going to give you two things about him tonight. 
Two things. Number one, this. He is absolutely sovereign. He is utterly in control. And all men believe that to some respect. God's in control. There's a reason for everything, that type of thing. But how sovereign, how in control is Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you three scriptures here. You've heard all these before, but listen to them. Listen to them like it's the first time. This is this, Daniel 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, Christ, doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Nobody can reach out and do anything to him or say unto him, what doest thou? They don't even write a reply. That's how sovereign he is. He has all power and no one can stop him. Listen to this. This is Psalm 115, 2 and 3. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And consider the illustration there. A heathen, a man of this world who has all the temporal advantages. He's strong. He's intelligent. He's got a good job. All the natural advantages of this world. He has them all and he's standing on the neck of one of the Lord's people. He says, where's your God? You're his person. I'm standing on your neck. It appears I am the victor in all this. Where's your God? And the Lord's person looks up to him and says, he's in the heavens and he is doing, hath done, whatsoever he pleased. Even this right now, this seemingly bad thing, this is good. I just can't see it right now. He's that sovereign. I'll give you this. Listen to this. This is Amos 3.6. It says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? That's how sovereign. Who's responsible for evil? Whose fault is that? That is my fault, and that is your fault. If there is evil, a man did it. That man is responsible for that evil. And God is absolutely sovereign over every single bit of it just to bring good out of that evil. That's how sovereign he is. And you say, why do you spend so much time on that? Why is that such a big deal? It's for this reason. I can tell you that this God-man, Jesus Christ, is savingly kind to sinners. And I'm going to use that word sinner interchangeably with another word in this message, elect. And I get to do that because they are one and the same. You read it, Claire. Interchangeably, sinners elect. I can tell you that he is savingly kind to sinners, and I can tell you that he is gracious to sinners, and he has purpose to save sinners. And it means absolutely nothing if he's not sovereign. If he is not in control, that means he can purpose to save me, he can do whatever he thinks he needs to do to save me, and I can perish anyways. It means absolutely nothing. But because he is sovereign, he is in absolute, utter control. If he has purpose to save me, I must be, and that cannot change. And that brings me to the second thing about him I want to tell you. He is utterly reliable. Now look back up at verse 31 and consider those first two words it starts with. It says, and again. Now why would the scriptures point that out? And again. Well, it's for this reason. It's bringing to remembrance what he was doing. He was doing what he would always do. He was doing what he could be relied on. On to do. He was doing what he could be predicted to do. He was going along and he was cleansing lepers and he was given blind man sight and he was given deaf man hearing and the ability to speak. He was raising men from the dead. 
This is what he could be relied upon to do. This is what he always did. I say this with all reverence. He is utterly predictable. Predictable. What he promises, he will do. And all these lepers, all these sick people, all these infirmed people, they all came to him. And he came to all these sick people, all these lepers, all these infirmed people. And those two things always come together. He goes to you and you come to him because he draws you. That's it. And I challenge you to look in this book and show me one illustration where a sick person, an infirm person, came to the Lord for healing and he didn't heal him. It doesn't exist. It says this in Luke 9, 11, it says, And the people, when they knew, when they knew him, followed him, and he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. All of them. Every one of them who had a need of healing. You know what he did? He healed them. And he can be utterly relied upon to do that. If you are a sinner in need of healing, he's utterly reliable. He will not turn you away. He has promised in this book, if you need healing, come to him. You will have that healing. And here's the greater thought in all this. If you do ever come to him, if you ever find out you are an infirm person, sin sick, it is for only one reason, because he has saved you. He saved you from the foundations of the world. He, that's the first point. Here's the second one. He, Christ, hath done, finished, all things. All things necessary for a sinner's salvation. Turn over here to Colossians chapter 1. Let's just see something here. We're going to read a few verses here. This all speaks of the activities and the doings of Jesus Christ. What I would have you notice is this. Never in these verses of scriptures does it say that Jesus Christ is going to do anything. It only says he's already done these things, and they are presently done. Look here, look at verse 16. Colossians 1.16. For by him were, past tense, all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He created. He created the heavens and the earth, the water and the firmament. He created beast. He created every man. And I think this is amazing. When he made Adam, he made the entire human race. He made every man in one man, a whole posterity in one man. And when he was done, he looked at it and said it was good. And he sat down and he rested. Not because he was tired, because he was finished. And he created this by himself and for himself. And I like simple things. I like everything simplified. I think about this from time to time. I'm sure you do too. Why is there grass out there? Why does the Lord make grass? Why trees? Why do we have stars over top here? Why is all this? Why is there dirt underneath that grass? I can tell you this, folks. It's as simple as this. There is dirt out there for one reason. So that some 2,000 years ago, a Roman soldier could dig a hole in it and drop a pole into it and suspend the Lord Jesus Christ between heaven and earth, dying on that cross, that he might achieve his chief glory. That's the purpose. The simple purpose of all things, that Jesus Christ would have the preeminence, the glory, in all things. He created 
by himself, for himself. Go on to verse 17. And he is before all things. All of the gospel, all understanding can be found in these few words that are in Hebrews 4.3. And here's what they say. The works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means before there was an earth and before there was a person when it was just God and the purpose of God. God's purpose being to glorify himself in the person of Jesus Christ through the salvation of a particular people. He gave those people to Christ. Christ agreed to be their surety. And as soon as that contract was signed, that covenant was ratified, it was over. He was before all things. All things that were necessary in salvation were found before the foundations of the world were ever created. Now, all those things had to play out in time. In time, Christ had to come and he had to live that righteous life. He had to come and he had to die for the sins of his people. In time, the Holy Spirit has to come to each individual child of God and give him life. All these things have to happen in time. But the works were finished. He's before all things were finished from the foundation of the world. That's why he bears that title, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Everything was done in eternity past. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Literally concreted. All things being his people, we are all concreted into Christ, immovable, established, established in righteousness, in justification, in sanctification, in sonship with God, in Christ Jesus. We are anchored within the veil. We can't get out. That's just the way it is, and we have always been that way. Go on reading, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that he might have the glory. And here's how that glory was achieved. Look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace. Past tense. Already done. Through the blood of his cross... By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. Having made. Past tense. Over. Presently done. Every sinner. Every member of the elect. Exact same thing. It's finished. Christ has made your peace with God. You have been reconciled to God by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the commandment to you is this. Be reconciled to God. He ain't angry at you. The reason for anger has been removed. Don't be angry with him. Come, be received as a son, a royal son. Now, all those things speak of the activities of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's going to talk about the you, who he did this for. Look down at verse 21. And you, this is not addressed to every man. If it was, every man would be saved. This is to the elect. This is to God's people. This is to sinners. And you, what is our contribution in all this? And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your own mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. This you whom he saved, who he has made peace with God on behalf of, what did we contribute? 
Well, we alienated ourselves from God. We made him our enemy by our wicked works, and I surmise from that that we provided nothing than the sin that made the salvation necessary in the first place. That's it. Now, you might look at that and say, that's kind of a a dreary thing to read. I think that is the most wonderful thing I've ever read in my entire life. Because if you want to know if you're a you, it's simply this. If you can bring nothing to the table but sin. I've made myself the enemy of God. I have alienated myself from him. I have done all these things. I can bring trespass. I can bring transgression. I can bring sin. That's the only thing I can bring to the table. That means you're you. You're you who Christ has made. Past tense, your peace with God. It's over. He. He hath done all things, and he hath done all things well. Now, I said that hope was twofold. That would be accepted of God. And also this, that everything that has happened and is happening right now, it's all to bring Christ the greatest glory and to bring me to that expected end. All things, hurtful things, painful things, joyful things, all those things. And we have this promise, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's the, pro- the, the promise to the you. Let me give you a story real quick. Todd preached on this not too long ago, so we won't turn to it. The end of Genesis 42, Jacob says these words. All these things are against me. You remember what happened? There's a man named Joseph down in Egypt, the long-lost son of Jacob. He is the most powerful man in Egypt. There's a famine in the land, and if you want corn, Egypt's the only place you can get it, and you've got to go to Joseph to get it. Jacob thinks Joseph is dead a long time ago. Jacob sends the rest of his sons down to Egypt to get corn. Joseph sees those brothers. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And Joseph decides he wants to see the whole family. So he hatches a scheme, an elaborate ruse. He takes those boys and he takes Simeon. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold Simeon in prison. And you're going to go get your brother Benjamin. And you bring him back so I can see him. I'll know you're not spies. I'll know you're true men. He knew who they were. All he was trying to do was get the whole family down there to him. That was it. But I'm going to hold him. So the boys go back. They go back to Jacob. They tell Jacob what happened. Jacob said, Joseph is not. He thought Joseph was dead. Simeon is not. He's as good as dead. And now you'll take Benjamin from me. All these things are against me. I can't blame him the least. Faced with those circumstances, I would have said the exact same thing. All these things are against me. What he didn't know is that mean old man in Egypt? That was his long lost son that meant him absolutely no harm whatsoever. He didn't know that in a very short time the whole family was going to travel down there to Egypt. They would all be reunited. They would become incredibly wealthy men. And the Lord would bring a great posterity from those 12 tribes right there. He could not see that in the moment. He couldn't see what was, what was long off. All he could see in front of his face was, all these things are against me. But the truth of the matter was that all these things were all working for him. He just couldn't see it. He did all things well. He hath done all things. He did it well. It's all well. 
It's all working for our good to bring us to that expected end, the very salvation of our souls. Now, that is the hope and the reason of the hope. Let's consider this man for a second. This man the Lord dealt with, very simple. He's deaf. He cannot hear a word, and that is likely from birth. He was born that way, and he represents the natural man, the way we are all born into this world. The natural man has no spiritual abilities. He cannot love. He cannot believe. He cannot see. Blind. But he is also deaf. Absolutely deaf. And you know what that means? That means he cannot hear the gospel as good news. It's always bad news to him. He cannot receive it as good news. And I'll give you a couple examples of that. Election. To the believer, to a sinner, election is the best news ever heard. It means God is sovereign in salvation. If he reaches out and he grabs me and he draws me to himself, I cannot get away. If I belong to him, he will have me. This one who would not come to him. This one who would not seek him. The sovereignty of God, election. It's the greatest news ever heard. But to a man who is deaf, he is spiritually deaf, these are hard words. These are hard words to him. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To every believer, it's great news. To a natural man, that means I don't have any control. That means I'm not in the driver's seat. You can know whether you're elect or not. Are you a sinner? I'm not a sinner. I don't have anything for you. And here's what the natural man does when he finds something he doesn't like. He twists it. He twists the truth. He says this. Well, what that means is there's a whole bunch of folks out there who are begging for mercy, who want to be saved by Christ, but he's going to pass them by just because he didn't elect them. It has never once happened. The very reason a man cries out for mercy, the very reason a man comes to Christ, the very reason a man wants to be saved by Christ in the first place is for one reason. Before the foundations of the world were ever built, God chose him in Christ, chose him unto salvation, and he's coming in time to draw him to himself. That's the truth of the matter, and the natural man will twist that every single time because he doesn't like the implication of not being in control. I give you this. Christ died only for his elect. Now to the believer, that's the best news you ever heard. For sinners, for his elect, he died and he accomplished their salvation. It says this, Matthew one twenty one, And he shall bring forth his son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. Not all people, his people from their sins. If you're a sinner, you're one of his people. That means he saved you. And if he died for all men, it robs us of our hope. It means he can die from somebody and they can end up in hell anyways. Those things which are precious to the sinner, precious to the Lord's people, the natural man cannot receive them. He is deaf. This man has another problem. Not only is he deaf, he can't speak. He has a speech impediment. And that impediment is found in verse 35. Look down there. Of your text, Mark 7. Mark 7.35 says, And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed. That word string? Bondage. That's what it means. 
The natural man is in bondage, bondage to a sinful, dead nature. Therefore, he can't speak right. So what do you mean he can't speak right? He can only say one word. You know what that word is? I. I got saved. I allowed Jesus Christ to be my personal Savior. I haven't done that bad. I've done some good things. I am saved because I. That is the impediment of the natural man. It's all about me, what I have done. Now let me give you an Old Testament story on this. Turn over to Judges chapter 12. I want you to see this. I think this will express the point. I'll give you the backstory here. The Gileadites and the Ephraimites end up in a skirmish, and the Gileadites win. And so the Ephraimites, they've got to go back across the Jordan and get back home. So the Gileadites have this plan. They said, we're going to beat them down to the Jordan, and we're going to kill these guys as they try to cross the river. And here's the problem. You can't tell a Gileadite from an Ephraimite just by looking at them. They all look the same. So they have to have a way to be able to tell one from another. Let's see what they come up with here. Look at Judges 12, look at verse 5. And the Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when those Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, Let me go over, that the men of Gilead said unto them, Art thou an Ephraimite? If he said, Nay, no, then said they unto him, Say now, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passage of Jordan, and there fell at that time of the Ephraimites forty and two thousand. What was the difference? Shibboleth or Sibboleth? What's the difference? The H. No theologian, but Todd has expressed this to us how many times? The Jews, that H, what does it represent? The breath of life. Abraham. Before he was Abraham, he was Abram. Until the Lord revealed himself to him, he was Abraham. He gave him the H. He gave him life. Sarah, his wife, S-A-R-A-I, until the Lord revealed himself to her. And then it was S-A-R-A-H. He gave her the H, the breath of life. What's the point of what I'm saying here is the word you'll speak will always be I. I did this. I did that. Until the Lord gives you life unless he does sovereignly come to you and give you life. But when he does, it is a drastic change. It goes from I, I, I to what? He hath done all things well. That's the change right there. Now, I want to spend just a, a minute or two looking at what the Lord did for this man. Now, we'll talk about it along the way. This is the first thing he did for this man. He took him aside from the multitude. And when the Lord is dealing with a man, when he gives him life, that's exactly what he's going to do. He separates him from other men. You find that you just don't fit in anymore. You find that all these people around you saying, I did this, I did that, I've got this. You're not part of that anymore. You don't fit in. That's not your language anymore. It has to be him. He hath done all things well. That's the first thing he did for him. He separated him. Here's the second thing. He put his fingers in his ears. Best I could tell, when the Lord's talking about his fingers, he's talking about 
his divine power. This is what Luke eleven twenty says. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. His fingers in his ears, his power. It takes power to save a sinner. And here's what you find out. You're powerless, and it has to be all his power. Third thing, he spit on his hand, and he touched that man's tongue. What's that all about? It's about a transfer. Something from the Lord went to that man. Something from that man went to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. This is how a sinner is saved. Christ has to bear that man's sins. He has to die under the wrath of God, and the very righteousness of Christ becomes that man's righteousness, and that's real. There's nothing put on about that. That is truly the case because of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, this is a reoccurring theme in Scripture. I think this is the third time in Scripture where the Lord used spit when performing a miracle on a man. Why? Why spit? That's odd, isn't it? Here's what I think. If you went to the doctor, the doctor said you're sick, but I have a cure for you. You're not going to like it. Open your mouth. I have to spit in your mouth. And just recoiled, which is what I was hoping for. Yeah, exactly. It's gross. It's disgusting. This world wants to talk about love and wants to talk about community building and wants to talk about helping people create better lives for themselves. But no one wants to talk about blood. We have a very, very messy religion. No one wants to talk about a father forsaking his son. No one wants to talk about a son being forsaken by his father. Those things are messy. Those things are dirty. Nobody wants to talk about those things. Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac go up on that hill. The Lord says, sacrifice Isaac to me. He's bound. He's lying on there. And Abraham's got that knife. And he's staring into the eyes of his son. That son he loved. Loved him with all his heart. And he's got that knife ready in his hand. And he knows the Lord's going to raise him from the dead, but he still recognizes what he has to do. He has to take that knife and cut his son's throat. And you got kids. How awful, absolutely awful, that feeling must have been. And it is nothing like what God the Father experienced when he was pouring down his wrath upon his only begotten son. That's messy, dirty business that nobody wants to talk about. Think about Isaac laying on that altar. Staring up at his father, whom he loved, and he figured the last thing he was going to see was going to be this man whom he loved take a knife and plunge it into his throat. How awful that must have been. How messy and how dirty it was. But this is the means of salvation. Make no mistake about it. We have a bloody religion because we are that bad. That's it. That's why it's spit. Because this is a messy, bloody religion, but from this messy, bloody religion comes purity and goodness and holiness and righteousness. The best coming from the worst. Fourth thing he did was this. He looked up to heaven. He's got his fingers in this man's ears. He had spit and touched his tongue, and now he looks up to heaven. Why does he change his gaze? Because what he is about to say is not to the man. 
The man is just an object right now. He's going to speak to his father. He was making intercession for this man. Just the same way the Lord Jesus Christ makes effective intercession for all his people. He comes into the presence of his father, and because of who he is, he always gets what he wants. And he sighed. Was he tired of this guy? Was he over this? Was he angry at him? No. He sighed because he is a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knew exactly what he was going through. And he finally said this. He looked up and said, Afatha, be opened. And straightway, immediately, what he commanded came to be. And because Christ goes in the presence of his Father, and he says, save them, and here's the reason, I did what you gave me to do. Straightway, all the elect are received. And it's all for his sake. Now, what's your answer to that? What's your word? It is either I, or it's he hath done all things well. If it's he, he, you got the H, the child of God. I'm going to leave you there. Mm-hmm.